The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This is Nancy Harhut, author of Using Behavioral Science in Marketing, Drive Customer Action and Loyalty by Prompting Instinctive Responses, and you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which has been named as one of the top marketing podcasts by Forbes and LinkedIn, amongst others. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable on this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since I get to read every book featured on the show, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or any other resource I know of for whatever challenge you're facing, send me a LinkedIn connection invite with a message that you're a listener, and I will do my best to get you pointed in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. This episode is sponsored by Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. I'll tell you more and how to get a free copy of the book in a few minutes. Now, let's get on with the show. Today, we welcome Nancy Harhut to talk about her book, Using Behavioral Science and Marketing, Drive Customer Action and Loyalty by Prompting Instinctive Responses, published by Kogan Page. Getting people to take action is what Nancy Harhut is all about. Her specialty is blending creative with decision science to prompt response. A frequent speaker at industry conferences, Nancy has shared her passion with audiences worldwide, including in London, Sydney, Moscow, Madrid, Stockholm, Sao Paulo, Berlin, and all over the U.S. Along the way, she's been named a top 40 digital strategist, a top 100 creative influencer, a social top 50 email marketing leader, and one of the 10 most fascinating people in B2B marketing. Prior to co-founding HBT Marketing in Boston, Nancy held senior creative management positions with Hill Holiday, Mullen, and Digitas. She and her teams have won over 200 awards for digital and direct marketing effectiveness. And, interesting fact, she plays the accordion. Nancy, congratulations on using behavioral science in marketing, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you very much, Douglas. Very happy to be here. So... I was so excited uh, about your book, not just because of the topic, but it was also endorsed by so many authors. I've had the honor of interviewing, including uh, Robert Cialdini and Mark Schaefer, Roger Dooley, Tim Ash, Ann Handley, Andy Crestadina, Tamson Webster. And then in the book, you mentioned uh, a few other authors I've, I've interviewed. So it was like a, a little bit of a reunion uh, for me. And I, uh, there's so much in this book that I want to talk about. But we don't have hours and hours, so Nancy, I'm going to have to do one thing that I, I rarely do, and which is very difficult for me in life, which is to show some restraint. And I'm going to have maybe, gosh, try to try to just ask like maybe one question uh, about all or or most of the uh, of the chapters. But this is your first book. 
It is. It is my first book. It's funny. I would uh, speak at marketing conferences here and there, and sometimes people would come up to me and say, "Ooh, yeah, I want to buy your book. You know, what's your book?" And I'm like, "I don't have a book." You know, and it just, uh, you know, never really occurred to me to write one. But uh, eventually, enough people asked, and the opportunity arose, and so yes, I've just written my first book. I asked myself that while I was reading this. I was like, I, I just can't believe this is her first book. It's really, really well done. And then I shouldn't be surprised that at Boston University, you studied journalism. I did. That was uh, that was my major. And uh, a funny thing, Douglas, I uh, went into my senior year, going into my senior year, and I realized I would be a okay journalist, but I would never be a really good one. I looked around at my peers and they had a certain fire in their belly that I, I just didn't have. And I found that what I really liked was marketing writing. And so I scrambled my senior year to take any course I possibly could on advertising and marketing communications and public relations and corporate communications and uh, was lucky enough actually to uh, to get into that line of work. Uh, so I never really, other than being a stringer for a radio station one summer, I never really was a practicing journalist. Well, I'm glad you took those courses and uh, made that decision uh, early on. And having been in the agency business forever, probably even maybe a little bit longer than you, you told so many great stories about not just working at agencies. And uh, at one point, you even joked about how uh, working at an agency is uh, not a very secure job. <laughs> <laughs> and I true. and I had to laugh to keep from crying because I could just remember they were all you know layoffs were pervasive, and then uh, what what was interesting is in you would give examples of creative challenges you had in every chapter, and instead of saying here's what we did, what I found really helpful is you say well first we tried this and then we explored that and you it's like uh, in physics or math, you, you showed your you showed how the calculation worked. And I, I really uh, liked that. Well, thank you. I mean, that was, uh, it's all true, you know, and, and <laughs> right. that's what happens, you know, when you attack a problem, you, you look at it from a few different you know, angles, you try a few different things, and then you, you land someplace where you think, yes, this is it. Occasionally, it's the very first thing you thought of, very often it's not. Right, right. But also, it was interesting to see the approach that you took with each, you and your teams would take with each one, because then it, it prevented me from saying, yeah, but did they ever think about this? Did they ever think about that? So, and, and it was also very honest saying, well, we thought about this, but here's why that didn't work. So anyway, I, I, I found that really helpful. Now, just to let folks know about what's ahead in this interview, Nancy's going to reveal many secrets, a lot of secrets, okay, including what one word gets people to agree with you before they've even heard what you say next? And another one is how to convince someone who claims they're not in the market for your product or service that they actually are. And what you can do to prompt people to buy something now when the benefit comes later, if at all. And I know uh, those challenges exist for lots of listeners. Let me start by... Uh, reading an excerpt from the beginning of the book. You write, two kinds of people will pick up this book. Some of you will be marketers who want scientifically proven ways to get people to do something. Try, buy, buy again, recommend. Others will be marketers who want an effective way to stop people from doing something, say, ignore their targeted messages or switch to a competitor. Both seek ways to influence human behavior, and both will find what they're looking for here. To influence behavior, first 
you must understand why people do what they do. If you've been in marketing for any length of time, you've probably been bewildered by the behavior of some customers and prospects. You may market exactly what they need, the ideal product at the ideal price, yet they fail to read and reply. This is because people often don't make decisions so much as default to them. Science has proven that humans have hardwired responses, automatic, instinctive, reflexive reactions to the choices around them. In an innate effort to conserve mental energy, they frequently rely on these hardwired responses rather than make well-thought-out, well-considered decisions. This can impact a spectrum of their behaviors ranging from what they read to whom they trust, to when they buy. So, (laughs) Nancy, let me ask you, what then is the advantage for marketers? Well, the advantage for marketers is we should use what behavioral scientists have found about human behavior in order to influence it. So if we know that people are relying on these, you know, automatic hardwired behaviors, what we want to do is we want to trigger them or prompt them. Mm -hmm. And the way to do that is to bake some of these behavioral science uh, triggers into our marketing strategies and into our creative executions so that uh, when people encounter them, you know, again, they're cruising along on autopilot. They're not really thinking. They're just defaulting. We want to default them to the place we want them to go. So we just want to kind of nudge them or prompt them or steer them in the right direction and uh, take advantage of the fact that people are making these automatic decisions. Yes. And they're so predictable. <laughs> that's, what's, that's what was such a great reminder because I've read a number of books about these topics. So for me, it was like listening to a greatest hits uh, <laughs> Spotify list, but yet there's lots more that I, I was not aware of, which I'm going to share. And I only say that because occasionally a cynic will say, Douglas, you've read somewhere between 400 and 500 of these sales and marketing books. Are you still learning anything? <laughs> to which I like to respond, well, I'm not reading the same one 400 times, but more importantly, yes, every time there's something I learn and I slap my head and I go, how did you not know that? How did you not know that? And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But I want to jump to a topic that I'm not really comfortable with, and that's my emotions, okay? We're going to talk about uh, not just my emotions, but everyone's emotions. Kidding. I'm a very emotional person, as the listeners will know. Ron, ah! wh- where are you? Ah, I'm in a glass case of emotion! But in uh, chapter one, I think it is on, on page 11, you write, Marketing messages to consumers or businesses that focus exclusively on price and features leave an important lever unpulled. What (laughs) is that unpulled lever? So, well, what we really need to do is we need to add some emotion into our marketing messages. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, features and benefits, speeds and feeds, you know, that the facts and figures are unimportant. Right. Uh, They are important, but people make decisions for emotional reasons, and then they later justify those decisions with rational reasons. So what it means to us as marketers is we want to have both of those. There was a a researcher named Antonio Damasio, and he actually studied um, humans who had sustained injury to the parts of their brain that controlled emotion. What he found was these people were virtually incapable of making a decision, even a decision as, as simple as what would you like for lunch today? They would go around and around and around. They, they couldn't land. So what that shows is we really do need to tap into our emotions in order to make decisions. And this applies you know, across the board, B2C products as well as B2B products. Yes, and you make the case. And I seem to recall Damasio was once quoted as saying that humans are not 
thinking machines that occasionally feel, they're feeling machines that occasionally think. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> well, I thought was a great summary. So let's jump to the second chapter. And you write, even though marketers know that benefits sell, focusing exclusively on gains may not be the best move. And this is interesting because, you know, we always want to be positive and, and talk about the benefits our products provide. What might be the better move than to focus exclusively on the gains that customers can get? So sometimes you're smarter actually triggering some loss aversion. So mm -hmm. what do I mean by that? Well, behavioral scientists have found that people are actually twice as motivated <laughs> to avoid the pain of loss as they are to achieve the pleasure of gain. And of course, in marketing, what do we do? As you say, we double down on the gains, the benefits, the advantages, all the wonderful things that will happen if you just do what I'm asking you to do. Mm -hmm. and, and we know that benefits work, but the truth of the matter is a little well-placed loss aversion can go a long way because people don't want to make mistakes. They don't want to make missteps. They, they, you know, they're afraid of loss. So a little well-placed loss aversion can be good. And it could be something as simple as instead of saying, you know, take advantage of this you know, this new product or service, you say, don't miss. You know, those two little words, don't miss, are enough to, to trigger loss aversion. Um, I got a, a great email from a company. It was called Lot 18, and they wanted me to buy a bottle of wine. And they told me that I had $15 of unused credit in my account that expired tomorrow. Now, they could have said, hey, buy a bottle tomorrow, and, um, you know, we'll, we'll take $15 off, or buy a bottle by tomorrow, and we'll give you a $15 rebate. But no, they told me I already had the $15 in my account, but it was going to expire. So I mean, I didn't do this work. I just received the email, but I love it because it's such a great example of, of loss aversion and, and a very subtle, nuanced difference in terms of how you frame the message, how you serve up the message. And it really did take advantage of the, the notion of loss aversion. That was a great example in the book. And of course, every one of these chapters I read, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm guilty of that. I'm <laughs> it works on me. You know, back to the predictable part. You mention um, in the book, let's see, I think it's page 27, you, know, you quoted Dan Ariely. Uh, he says, we fall in love with what we already have. Can you mention what the endowment effect is? Because I see this all the time. Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, obviously, if there's something that we want to acquire, well, we value it. Right? That's why we want to acquire it. But once something becomes ours, we place even more value on it. Uh, we, we actually overvalue things. That, you know, going back to the the $15 credit, that's a great example of it. It was already in my account. It was worth more to me than if somebody wanted to take $15 off or give me a $15 rebate. It's why if you, you know, if you're going to sell your house and you call the realtor and say, Hey, I'm going to put my house on the market. And the realtor says, great. I'll get back to you once I run the comps and I'll show you essentially what the data tells us we should put your house on the market for. Mm -hmm. And then when they, they call back and they say, here's what we're going to list your house for. What do we do? We say like, that's all. No, no, no. It should be more, you know, because it's ours. We place greater value on things that are ours. Yeah. People are twice as motivated to avoid loss as to achieve gain. That's one of the, that's one of the things from the book that, is, that was such a great reminder. Let's jump to page 32. When it comes to marketing, we sometimes think there are only two reasons people buy. They either have a practical need for the product or service, or they have a strong desire for the product or service. If it's something they need, people may decide they cannot make it the item themselves or that it's more convenient, faster, or cheaper to acquire one manufactured by someone else. But what if it's something 
they don't need, <laughs> which is most of our prospective customers. What are some of those Nancy Harhut secret ninja mind tricks that can be used? Well, you know, if, if there's something that um, you know that, that we don't absolutely have like a, a need for, then it's a, it's the idea of of creating. Um, a want, right? We, we got to get people to want something. And there are a couple of ways to do that. And uh, both of them are actually two halves of the same coin. So mm-hmm. behavioral scientists talk about something called the scarcity principle. And what they found is if, you know, if something's readily available, we may or may not want it. Um, but if you tell people that uh, that something is only going to be around for a certain amount of time, or it's only available to some people, but, but not to everyone, that can change everything. And suddenly that thing that we may or may not want become something that we really very much want. Uh-huh. Humans have a tendency to to place greater value on things that are scarce. We, you know, we want what we can't have in a in a phrase. You know, that's how that's how we're hardwired. We want the things we can't have. It's why uh, you know when we were uh, young and dating, you know, we'd play hard to get. Why? Because that would make us more desirable. Yeah, and you also talk about how information when information is believed to be scarce, people will find it more persuasive. <laughs> that was very interesting. So, and it also brings to mind like when the the Concorde, which used to go from New York to London or Paris, I believe, years ago, when they announced that that service was going to stop, sales of the remaining flights were completely sold out because everyone wanted it because it was going away. Yep, you're absolutely right. That the same thing happened on a, on a smaller scale, not as big as the Concord, but with Twinkies. When Hostess announced that they were going to discontinue Twinkies, there was this like huge, you know, oh my gosh, we have to have them. People were selling boxes of them on eBay for you know huge amounts of money. But uh, you're absolutely right. You know, if something's there, we can take advantage of it if we want, but we don't really get around to it. But then you tell people that they're not going to be able to have it; it's going to go away. You know, and suddenly it's like, oh no, I've got to get mine. Yeah, and when Twinkies made that announcement, that was really a low point in my life, but I was able to pull myself through, and fortunately, they they went back to uh, production. So let's jump to uh, Chapter 4 on page 45. Again, folks, this is a little different interview style because I'm having to show such unbelievable (laughs) restraint because there's so much in this book, and I can't believe you got it down to the number of pages you did. So let me ask you this. When you ask business people – to boil down the purpose of their marketing to one single, simple verb. What verb do you tend to get? Uh, well, you know, it's, it's funny. Different people have, um, have different answers, but the what one are some of the answers? Yeah, what are some of the answers you get? Uh, you know, so it it kind of I think it depends a little bit on their perspective or what they're what they happen to be marketing. But uh, you know, people will say that the the, the main purpose is to uh, get people to respond or to reply or buy or enroll or activate or sell or consume or use or act or click or answer or convert, mm-hmm. persuade, convince, motivate, influence. Um, it, you know, just it goes you know drive, desire, compel, question. Uh, and then in, in some cases, you know, the, the, the single most important thing is to, uh, to ignore or survive or unseat, you know, if maybe <laughs> if uh, somebody's kind of warding off competitors. Uh, but the, the, the word that I always come back to is, is the word get, you know, that's, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get people to do things. And what is one of the most counterintuitive ways to get things? Well, um, there's something called the reciprocity principle, and uh, another another way of explaining it is um, give to get. So mm-hmm. basically, what behavioral scientists have found is humans are hardwired to 
answer in kind what someone has done for them. So if you get someone from, uh, if you get something from someone, whether or not you asked for it, you now feel a little indebted to the person that you got it from and, and you want to kind of return that, that favor. So, you know, if somebody sends you a birthday card, you think I've got to remember to send them a birthday card. Or if somebody picks up the tab at lunch, you think, oh, the next time we go to lunch, I've got to remember to pick up the tab. Like we don't like to owe people. And, um, what's, what's kind of counterintuitive about the reciprocity principle is, um, you know, some marketers feel, I don't, you know, I don't want to be giving stuff away for free. I, I should really focus on, you know, taking care of my clients. And we actually had a client that we did some work for. It was a financial services firm. And, they wanted to target their financial advisors who had stopped selling their funds about a year or more ago. Mm-hmm. And so there you, you might say, well, you know, okay, why would you be communicating to people? They stopped about a year ago, uh, but they were like, no, we want to, we want to send them a gift. So we ended up creating a campaign where we sent these people an email that said, uh, we've created something special for you. We selected a very special gift for you, picked it out just for you. It's going to show up in the USPS in the next couple of days. Watch for it. And then sure enough, a couple of days later, they get this box. And in the box is a New Yorker cartoon. It's it's framed. It's uh, It's, you know, relevant. It's some, you know, funny line about, uh, you know, selling, I think, retirement plans or something. And had their name in the caption. I would say in the caption was the person's name. So if I went to you, Douglas, it it would have your name. If it went to me, it would have my name. And so, you know, here it is. It's it's New Yorker cartoon. It's got your name in it. It's framed. You can hang it in your office. Um, it, It was really a cool gift. They ended up picking up and this is what the client told us, 68 million in incremental revenue based on that campaign. And you got a big Cut of that action too, right? Personally, Nancy. <laughs> don't I wish? Don't I wish? <laughs> but uh, but it's an interesting example. You know, you get this. You didn't ask for it, but there it is, hanging on your wall. You're looking at it in your office every day, and you feel like I should, you know, we should maybe give them some business. I, you know, it, it made them top of mind, and it actually encouraged people to uh, financial advisors to recommend them. Yes, and uh, in this chapter, you talked to you mentioned uh, Tim Ash's book about the evolution of the human brain. He was on a uh, an episode a while back, and I'll include a link to his interview at this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com. But what's interesting to me is the science behind why we are so compelled to want to give back. It's a real uh, – it, it, it goes right back to our cave-dwelling ancestors. It's really interesting. And it's funny, when I was reading the book, I was reminded once when I was little – we had these uh, pecan trees in the yard. One of my buddies, one of my little friends was there, and we, we collected up all these pecans uh, under the tree and put them in a box. And it was around Christmas time. And uh, I, I said, why don't you bring them home to your family? His name was Reuben. And uh, so we I, I, you know, we had a little Christmas card on there, and I, I wrote on there, you know, from the Burdettes. And I remember my mom, she said, no, 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 don't put it that it's from us and i couldn't understand why and it's because she didn't want them to feel obligated to our family <laughs> she thought no let them you know th- th- it's from you let me make sure it's from you or i can remember another thing when i was little i remember you know i think you even mentioned in the book uh, you get these pre-printed address labels uh, from various charities, which works really, really well. And so i can remember my dad would get things like a pen or whatever and I one day I said, "Oh, this is really interesting. Uh, this is this is cool. Can I have it?" And he goes, "No. Well, I was going to throw it away, but if you want it, then I'm going to have to send them a check." 
<laughs> wow, interesting. Well, your mom, you know, I think demonstrated a keen understanding of, of human behavior, you know, by saying, oh, we don't want them to feel obligated, you know, yeah. if it's just from you, that's one thing. But if it's from the family, they're going to feel like they have to do something. Right. And your dad's uh, response is really interesting. It's like, so well, I'm going to throw it away. Okay, fine. But if we're actually going to use it, then we kind of owe them something for it. Really interesting. It, it shows you how reciprocity works. Yeah, yeah, really. Very, very true. TV advertising is a powerful channel for business growth, and it's a counterintuitive solution for businesses frustrated by the rising costs of digital marketing. But the traditional process for launching TV campaigns is expensive, time-consuming, and complex. That's why marketing architects flip the traditional process on its head. With all-inclusive TV advertising, they invest their own money to produce, analyze, and optimize your TV campaign. All you pay for is media, setting you up for rapid growth at a significant cost advantage. This approach to TV is so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. It's called All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising. It explores how a variety of brands are using TV to transform their businesses and how you can do the same. For a free copy of the book, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. Let me jump to, to chapter five, page 61, and start off with this. Personalization, relevance, and exclusivity can all influence behavior. They can work very well for marketers. However, there's a particular instance when they alone will not be enough, or when they can potentially backfire and cause a reaction that is the complete opposite of the desired one. And that time is when people don't know what they want, because when people are not sure of what to do, there's something more important to them than feeling special. What is it? Well, I think what it is is they want to feel safe, right? If, if you're not really sure what to do, um, you know, you're, you're, you're confused, you could go either way, and you want some kind of clarity, you want some kind of feeling of, of, of safety, some feeling that, you know, you're, you're not going to make a mistake. And where people can find that is in social proof. So when we're, we're not certain what to do, we very often look to others around us, particularly others like ourselves, and we follow their lead. You know, we don't know what to do, it's like they're doing it, and we think they must know something that I don't. It doesn't occur to us that they might be just as lost as we are, and they're just kind of giving it a try. But you know, we look around, and when we see people doing things, we think, "Oh, there's there's safety in numbers. If all these people are doing it, it, it must be a safe bet. It must be a good thing. I'm, I'm probably not going to go wrong." And um, so, if you're not certain of, of what you want, or if you're, you know, as a marketer, if your product is something brand new, you know, so people aren't really sure what to do. It's, you know, it's not enough to just say, "Oh, you can be the first. I may not want to be the first. I might not want to take that risk. What I might want is some reassurance that uh, I'll be in good company. Yeah, like seeing a long line outside a restaurant. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, that actually uh, happened to me when I was in uh, Barcelona. I had been recommended a restaurant, and uh, when the uh, concierge, you know, saw me leaving and said, "Hey, where are you going?" I said, "Oh, a friend of mine recommended this restaurant," and I gave the name of the restaurant, and the concierge said, "Oh, that's right next door to another restaurant," you know, and, and gave the name of the other restaurant, and I thought. What a peculiar response. Like she wasn't really saying, oh, yeah, great restaurant. Instead, she was like serving up this other one. So I said, is, is that a better one? And, uh, you know, 
very politic. It was, oh, no, they're, they're both good. It's just that one of them is, um, you know, has this uh, reputation for being a little bit more avant-garde. So anyway, I go thinking, well, I'll have to check it out. There is nobody in front of the restaurant that the concierge had recommended <laughs> in this huge line in front of the restaurant that my friend had recommended. So I went in there, had a fabulous meal. But then I was like, oh, speaking of reciprocity, I'm like, I'm going to go back. When I cut through the lobby, the concierge is going to say, so, and I'm going to feel like, oh, geez, what am I, you know? So I thought, I'll pop in and I'll have dessert at the other place. So I can at least say, thank you very much for the recommendation. I had a lovely dessert there. I come out of the first restaurant. The second restaurant that had been completely empty is jammed. <laughs> <laughs> I had to like snake my way up to the, the hostess desk and say, you know, do you, do you have anything? And the woman was on the phone. She hung up the phone. You know, she kind of helped you. I was like, do you have anything for, for two people? And she's like, I literally just got a cancellation. Otherwise, no. And ended up having a whole second meal to the food was so good. Right, right. So I want to jump to uh, chapter six, which is about storytelling, which as longtime listeners will know, I think is a term that marketers should be very careful using around civilians. And by civilians, I mean anyone outside the marketing department, because unfortunately, despite how powerful stories are, people might, you know, there's a perception of marketers that some of them are arts and crafts party planners who work in the make it pretty department and just be careful. Don't, don't go in and say, I want to do, I want to do storytelling, just sneak it in and it'll work really well. But I wanted to quote and it, it related to that from page 77, where you write storytelling has become a bit of a buzzword in marketing. All of a sudden, lots of gurus started to recommend the approach. Blog posts, conference keynotes, and workshops were devoted to the art of storytelling. Once reserved for movies and books, storytelling became a marketing tool. Marketers were advised that instead of getting to the point right away, instead of leading with the most important information, they should tell a story. While there are times it still makes sense to get to the point quickly and to lead with the big news, there are other times when starting with or incorporating a story is a smart strategic move. And what I was wondering if you could talk about the science behind why stories are so unbelievably compelling and persuasive. Yeah, well, you know, it's funny, Douglas, that behavioral scientists have found that the human brain is, is actually, literally, hardwired for stories. When, when we when we hear stories, that's how we make sense of the world. And when you think about it, before the written word, stories were how information was passed from generation to generation, right? So stories are engaging, they're intriguing, they're informative, but stories actually have a effect on the human brain. So if we're just dealing with facts and figures, uh, two parts of the brain get activated, Broca's area and Wernicke's area. They're the uh, two parts of the brain that process language. But when you start to tell a story, other parts of the brain get activated. If, if I was telling a story about how I was running down the street and I tripped and I skinned my knee, uh, maybe that would uh, activate the I'm sorry, the motor cortex, or if I talked about waking up in the morning to the smell of uh, hazelnut coffee wafting under my door frame, you know, maybe that would activate my olfactory cortex. But the, the net net is the more parts of your brain that get activated, the better you understand the information and the longer you remember it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you think about it, marketers, you know, we want to make sure people understand our messages and we also want to make sure that they, they remember them. There's a um, neuroscientist at, uh, Princeton named Yuri Hassan, and I'm going to I'm going to paraphrase his quote, but he says that stories are the only way to affect the brain so that the listener or the reader takes the idea or the experience and makes it their own. 
So that's like gold for a marketer. Like yeah. it is, it's a way for you to take your idea and plant it in the brain of your customer or your prospect. And, you know, when you think about it, people are skeptical. They may argue with what other people tell them, but they rarely argue with their own conclusions, right? And if, you, if the idea becomes theirs, right. they're not going to argue with themselves. It is, it is the, the most powerful uh, thing out there. And I didn't always understand that until I started reading about the science behind why the human brain it just craves uh, a story. And we had stories long before we had the written word, back to our cave-dwelling ancestors. So there's a whole uh, chapter on that, and I just want to sum it up by saying, facts tell, stories sell. And you see, Nancy, I'm a poet, and I didn't know it. Now, what I just did there, we're going to talk about in a few minutes, okay? Stay with us. Stay with us. Okay. So I want to go to uh, chapter 7. I did it my way. So, Nancy, you say that one of the most powerful drivers of human behavior is autonomy bias. Autonomy bias. Explain what that is. So, behavioral scientists have found that humans have this really deep-seated desire to exert some kind of control over themselves and their environment. So essentially, we don't like to be told what to do. We don't like to have our hands forced. You know, we, we want to exercise some, you know, some license, right? We want to have some control. And uh, so what that means for marketers is, uh, is a few things. When we can offer choices to people, that's a really good thing because choices make people feel like they're in control. If you kind of put one product or one service down in front of someone and say, you know, would you like to buy this? Their question is, do I or do I not want this? And they don't have any context. They have nothing to compare it to. So very often people think, well, you know, I'll, I'll sleep on it. I'll ask around or do some research. And then no one gets around to doing that research or asking around. So a lot of sales get lost. But when you put two or three things in front of someone, the question goes from do I or do I not want this to which of these do I want? We just <laughs> yeah. kind of leapfrog over the, you know, it, it becomes like an assumed close. I'm going to get one of them. It's just a question of which one. So Giving people choice makes them feel like they have some kind of autonomy, some kind of control. Uh, there was a study called the, uh, the But You Are Free study where uh, they found that if you ask someone to do something, but then you remind them, but you are free to choose, B-Y-A-F, but you are free to choose, but it's up to you, but the choice is yours, you know, language to that effect, it can actually almost double the likelihood people will do what you want, to do, want them to do. Like they're, you're kind of reminding them that they're the ones that are in charge. Um, you know, years ago, uh, Frank Parrish, who was my creative director at the time, was working on a letter for AT&T, and he was trying to get people, uh, uh, businesses who had AT&T to say that they wanted to stay with AT&T, because this was a long time ago. It was when the phone company had broken up, and people had to choose. You know, do they want to go to another company, like a Sprint or an MCI, or do they want to stay with AT&T? But whatever they wanted, they had to make a choice. And, you know, we were sending all kinds of marketing messages to get them to make that choice, and it was coming up on the the you know end of the time period and i remember frank coming into the office one day and saying i mean like wrestling with this and wrestling with this and i finally have the first sentence and it was you know something like you have an important decision to make if you don't make it soon someone else will make it for you and you know at the time i thought oh that that's nice years later i you know found out about autonomy bias and i thought oh my god that was brilliant because <laughs> right. you know and, and i talked to him years years later i tracked him down you know we're, we're still in touch and i was like you know 
what were you thinking? And he said, well, you know, it was all different kinds of businesses, some big, some small, you know, we, it, we didn't really have the, the data segmented. Um, so we had to, we had to write something that would appeal to everyone. And I thought, well, what's the one thing that a business owner wouldn't want? They wouldn't want someone else telling them what to do. And he was absolutely right. Yes. And it reminds me of when the kids were little and I needed them to get dressed to get them to school. And if I would just put out two uh, outfits, they would always pick one of them. Our son didn't really care so much, but our daughter was a little, uh, you know, that was more important to her. But it was like, I don't really care what they picked. I just wanted them to pick one. And it worked really well. And you mentioned that uh, Roger Dooley, who's been on the show uh, about his book Friction, he describes it as the four words that double persuasion, B-Y-A-F, but you are free. And it just lets people feel like they're uh, a little more in control, which, you know what, they really are. <laughs> and in fact, I think if you don't make them feel that way, it's, uh, you get that, that uh, concept called reactance, where they, they just don't want to be sold to, they don't want to be pitched, they don't feel like they have any, uh, any agency. So jumping ahead, now I, pr- I promised I was going to try and get through this and just show some restraint, but chapter eight, you mentioned, I think it's on page 106, that there is a simple behavioral science principle that will help you predict when someone may buy or buy again or buy more. In fact, you can use it to predispose your customers toward each of those actions. Nancy, what is it? Well, social scientists refer to this principle as the commitment and consistency bias. Yes. So what they found is if you can get someone to say yes once, Mm-hmm. They're much more likely to say yes a second time, a third time, a fourth time. Because what happens is once we make a, a commitment, a, a decision, a stand, once we take a stand, we like to remain consistent with it when future opportunities arise. And it's it's a decision-making shortcut. We don't have to revisit it. We've already kind of done that. We've done the the mental mathematics and the gymnastics in order to make our decision. And now when, when the opportunity comes up again, it's like, oh yeah, right. I do business with those people. I use this product. I, you know, I trust this firm. So if you can get that first yes, and it's very helpful if the first ask is relatively small, um, you're much more likely to get subsequent yeses. And what you want to do then is you want to start to escalate your asks so that you ultimately get to the, you know, the main request, which is, you know, do some business with me or buy my product. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's a great way if you can just get those, in, you know, that first ask could be something really small. It could be like me on Facebook or download our white paper or uh, watch this video, it, it, you know, or try our starter pack or use our free trial. It, it could be a very relatively small uh, commitment, but it's still is the seed for a much larger one. Yes, and you mentioned that throughout the book, you have, you're very clear. You have these boxes that say, mistake. <laughs> and of course, I see marketers do this all the time. And there's one on page 114 where you write, always asking for the sale right away. That, that's a mistake, folks. In some cases, you're better off securing small commitments or yeses before making the ultimate ask. And also, this chapter brought to mind, when I have been the unlucky recipient of a cold call. And I can tell it's a cold call because the first question they ask is, how are you today? (laughs) Like they care. Years ago, I started responding with one word, which is busy. I love it. So explain what they want me to say. And I think, didn't you, in that chapter, you had a, a thing about then they get you to, oh, uh, like if you say, oh, I'm fine. They go, really, well, children are starving in this country. Do you want to give money to it or something like that? 
Yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, uh, researchers have found that this works. If you can get someone to say, you know, uh, you know, so it's like, well, D Douglas, how are you feeling today? I'm good, you know, or how are you feeling today? I'm fine. You know, it's kind of almost one of those automatic responses that we don't think about, right? We usually say, you know, I'm good, I'm fine. Um, and then what, you know, what researchers have found is if you follow up with a request, in this case, they were studying charity uh, solicitations, it's really kind of hard after you've just said, you know, you're feeling good, you're feeling fine, you know, <laughs> everything's good, that you don't want to help, you know, these starving children or these distraught animals or, you know, whatever it is. It yes. just, it's inconsistent, really, with, you know, you just said things are good. Like, how could you now, you know, and they, they've tested this and they found that um, there really is an increase in response. Um, I mean, it, it happened to me. I was speaking at South by Southwest and I was walking down the street and I could see the the solicitor coming towards me. I think it was for Greenpeace. And I was like, so I went across the street and I'm like, oh God, that would just be so rude. But I had like, I vowed that I'm like, okay, I'm just going to be really, you know, quick in and out. I am not going to be signing any petitions. I'm not going to be donating any money. Um, but you know, hey, nice day, isn't it? Yes, yes, it is. Sees my badge. How's the conference going for you? Is it going well? Yes, yes, it is. You know, and then boom, she gets into her cell and, uh, that was a number of years ago. I would just tell you, I'm still donating to them. <laughs> it works, folks. This is so. Uh, this is all so predictable. Let's jump to uh, chapter nine, and I'm not going to tell folks what it's about, but I want to. I just want to read the very first paragraph. It's a couple questions, Nancy. What one word gets people to agree with you before they've even heard what you say next? How do you convince someone who initially claims they're not in the market for your product that they in fact are? What can you do to prompt people to buy something now when the benefit comes later, if at all? Well, you know, Douglas, what you're doing there is you're using something that behavioral scientists refer to as information gap theory. It's a, um, a term coined by a neuroscientist named George Lowenstein. And what he's found is if there is a gap between what you know and what you want to know, you'll take action to close that gap. So mm -hmm. if you're, you know, if you're teeing up these questions, you know, and people are interested in them, but they don't know the answer, they're much more likely to say, oh, I've, I've got to take this next step. I've got to read further. I've got to click. I've got to call, whatever it is. I've got to keep um, listening. I've, I've got to keep listening, right? I've <laughs> got to find, you know, so I can get the answer because I want the answer. And getting the answer could actually be very rewarding, just, you know, finally attaining it as well as the actual knowledge itself. So what she just did there is explain information gap theory, because we're not going to answer that question. Not yet, but we will. But let's jump ahead to chapter 10, and I want to quote from this. They say that multi-channel shoppers are worth more than single-channel shoppers. They say that a follow-up email or direct mail piece will deliver incremental lift, even if you only change the subject line or the outer envelope teaser copy. They say that a customer's past behavior is the best predictor of their future behavior. Of course, we as marketers believe them, but Nancy Harhut. Who are they? Well, that's a great question, isn't it? You know, how often have you found yourself saying, "Well, you know, they say uh, you shouldn't go swimming thirty minutes until thirty minutes after you've had lunch." And who's they? Right. right. Well, they are the authorities that um, you know that we believe that we you know give credibility to, and sometimes it is, in fact, somebody that you know that we know. But very often, it's you know by virtue of somebody's title or by you know, virtue of where they work uh, or, or the thought leadership that they put out there. But we just assume that the authorities know what they're talking about. And I mean, that's the thing about the authority principle. Ever since we were children, we've been taught to recognize and respect authority. So by the time we're adults, it's ingrained in us. And when authorities tell us something, we generally just believe it. And if an authority <laughs> tells us to do something, we usually comply. We usually do it. 
We don't yeah. really give it a lot of thought. You can put an actor in a uh, a lab coat on TV, and they say, you know, you, you might think they're a doctor. Absolutely. I, there's a there's an interesting story about a couple of guys, criminals, really. They dressed up as bank guards, stood outside of a Wells Fargo ATM, hung a sign on the ATM that said that the ATM was out of order and people should give their deposits, their money, to the guards. And then they just stood there and collected money. And they, eventually they made off with like thousands and thousands of dollars because they looked like bank guards. So yeah. people assumed, well, okay, I should listen to them. No, it, I tried it last night. It works really well. <laughs> Wasn't there another story about how uh, your friends were looking to hold a, a parking spot somewhere in an in a urban area and there got to be a dispute with another driver and you couldn't find a police officer. So they went and got a bellhop who was in a uniform and that worked? Yes, yes, we were in New York, and I think my my friend uh, my friend Lynn was trying to back into a space just at, at the same time that another car was trying to pull into it, and uh, so my friends uh, Colleen and, and Amy and Sharon were like, you know, kind of like, oh my god, oh my god, and, and then they said, I know, we're going to go get someone who can solve this, and um, they come back with a bellhop, and I, I said to Sharon, a bellhop, and she goes, well, I couldn't find a police officer, and at least this guy had a uniform on. <laughs> right. Okay. Did it work? Uh, Lynn actually did get the parking space, and interestingly, uh, the next day when she came out to her car, there was a note on the car from the guy who had been challenging her, and he said something like, you know, I'm really sorry. Um, this shouldn't have been, you know, your experience in New York. You know, I, I see you've got out-of-state uh, uh, you know, out license plate. Um, this really shouldn't have been your experience in New York, and I apologize, which I thought was, you know, wow. absolutely unusual and very classy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of nice people in New York City. I lived there for 10 years. And the thing about New Yorkers that I particularly like is they're just very straightforward. <laughs> you know where you stand with people. So uh, not everybody likes that. But let's jump ahead to uh, the next chapter. You write, people prefer the status quo to exerting the energy to act. This can sound like dismal news to a marketer. Unless that marketer uses status quo bias to their advantage. So what is status quo bias and how can they leverage that to, to, their, uh, to help them? Well, uh, status quo bias is just the, the preference for keeping things the way they are. Right. And that's, you know, it's pretty much how, you know, how humans are hardwired. You know, we, we don't like to change. We just like things the way they are. And so, you know, if you're talking about keeping your existing customers, well, that can be a good thing. But, mm -hmm. you know, if you're trying to, um, trying to lure customers away, that could maybe be a little bit tougher. But one of the things that you can do is you can use something called choice architecture, where um, basically the way you present choices influences how people respond to them. And what you want to do as a marketer is you want to lead people down the path of least resistance because that's the path they're going to take. But at the end of that path, you want to have your desired action. So people are going to people are going to want to do the you know the easier thing they're going to want to take the easy way out and so what we want to do is we want to make it easy for them to do what we want them to do and make it a little bit more difficult for them to do the things we don't want them to do we don't want to box them in you know we talked about autonomy bias we we don't want to force their hand but we just want to make it easier for them to do what they want to do we um we did some work for a company that was trying to get uh employees to sign up for voluntary benefits, you know, cancer insurance, uh, disability insurance, things like that, uh, that they would have to pay for on their own. And the way they used to do things was they'd send out an email saying, oh, the insurance representative is going to be here, sign up, book an appointment. You can hear about all of these different plans. And if you're interested, you know, you can, you can 
purchase fund. And with a little bit of choice architecture, we turned that around and instead we said, we've booked your appointment for you. It's at this time, at this place. Um, you know, all you have to do is show up. And then of course we said, if this time is inconvenient, here's how you can reschedule. And um, they, I think they, they tripled the number of people who actually went to a meeting. And then as a result, more of those people heard about things that, that they found interesting and ended up purchasing some insurance. But mm -hmm. it, it was just by making it easier for them to do what the marketer wanted them to do and a little bit harder for them to do what the marketer didn't want them to do. Yeah, they had to lift a finger to uh, get out of the meeting. As I recall, they were automatically scheduled for the meeting. <laughs> Right, right. They're automatically scheduled. It would require more work to get out of it than yeah. to just show up, you know, whereas in the past, they, they were the ones who had the burden of having to schedule the meeting. So that was just ugh, like, who wants to, you know, who wants to put in any effort? You know, we're just cruising <laughs> along on autopilot. like, eh, we don't, I don't need to do that. Yeah. Inertia is the most powerful uh, force on the, on the planet. So I'm going to skip over chapter 12, but I want to jump to chapter 13 because the uh, information gap theory is just probably killing the listeners. Nancy Harhut, what one word gets people to agree with you before they've even heard what you say next? Well, the word, Douglas, is because. <laughs> yes. what, uh, what, uh, what researchers have found is when we see or hear the word because, we, we just start to comply before uh, we've even processed what comes next. We just assume that whatever's coming next is a good, legitimate reason. And, uh, and so we start to agree. So because is a great way to, you know, to tee up your reason why, you know, the reason why you want someone to do something. Because when they, they see or hear it, they just, they start to agree. Ellen Langer from Harvard actually ran an experiment. There were a bunch of people lined up to use a photocopier. She sent someone to the head of the line and she instructed that person to say, excuse me, um, I have some copies to make, you know, or excuse me, can I cut in front of you? Excuse me, can I cut in front of you? And 60% of the time they could. So that was our baseline. Right. Langer repeats the experiment a second time, instructs them to say, excuse me, can I cut in front of you because I'm in a hurry and I have some copies to make. So the 60% number shoots up to 94%. And as I tell you this, Douglas, you say, well, you know, person said they were in a hurry. So Langer repeats the experiment a third and final time, instructs the person to go to the head of the line and say, excuse me, can I cut in front of you because I have some copies to make? Well, the 94% number drops to 93%. So <laughs> I know. It's significant, right? Everyone standing in that line was standing in that line because they had some copies to make. And so Langer identified the word because as an automatic compliance trigger. So it's it's a very valuable word for us as marketers. Mm -hmm. And in the chapter, as I recall, you talk about like if you have you have uh, items for sale or they're, they're on sale or they're greatly reduced – you, you, you need to inc include some sort of because to help people understand why they're reduced, that they're not bad. Like I can remember years ago we had an HVAC client, and they would run these ads in the newspaper about how you know, if, you, if you buy the furnace for this amount, we're actually not going to charge you to install it because – and then the, the ad would say, it's a slow time for us. <laughs> we're trying to keep people busy, and it worked really well. Yeah, no, providing that reason why is, is so important. You know, people are more likely to do what you ask them to do if you give them a reason why, but then you don't, you know, you don't want people to be suspects. So sometimes with the reason why, you also want to have the, the reason to believe, you know, it's, it's a good deal. Oh, but okay, I get it. It's a slow period for them. Yeah, and you, it, it, there needs to be better than, it needs to be better than because I have copies to make. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be better long term. So let me jump to uh, chapter 14, page 197, and quote, where you say, marketers can often convey 
the same information in several different ways. However, some of those ways offer more advantages. Nancy, do tell. What are some of the things that people could be doing? Well, you know, one of the things that you can be doing is you can be using rhyming phrases. Ah, see what I did there? (laughs) Yes, yes. I believe you did that a little bit earlier as we were chatting. But uh, what behavioral scientists have found is uh, you can present the same information in a couple of different ways. One way rhymes, the other way doesn't. And um, people will judge the rhyming version to be the more truthful, the more accurate one. So I think researchers studied woes unite foes versus woes unite enemies. So both of those statements convey the same information, but, you know, woes unites foes is the one that rhymes. It's a little, you know, catchier, a little mm-hmm. bit more memorable, but people actually believe it more. They, they believe it's more truthful, more accurate. And the reason for this is rhyming phrases are easier for the human brain to process. And if it's easier for the brain to process something, it feels right. And if something feels right, it's not a big leap to assume it is right. Yes. And you mentioned another one, which was what sobriety conceals, alcohol reveals. And then it was reworded in a test, what sobriety conceals, alcohol unmasks. (laughs) It just didn't work as well. And then, of course, even before I got to this part in the book, I was thinking like, oh, yeah, back to the O.J. Simpson trial. Johnny Cochran said, if the glove doesn't fit, you must acquit. Two paragraphs later, you mentioned that. So... Yeah, that's great. Well, let's jump to uh, chapter 15 real quickly here, which is page 216, I believe. Nancy Harhut, how can you convince someone who claims they're not in the market for your product or service that they actually are? Well, you know, that's a good question, Douglas. Thank you. (laughs) I think that, uh, you know, marketers run up against this, uh, you know, relatively often. And you know, you, you've got this great product and service, you've, you've targeted it properly, and people are like, no, no, I'm, I'm all set, I, I don't need it. And what we can do is we can use something called availability bias. And the way behavioral scientists identify, or, or I should say explain, or define behavioral uh, uh, availability bias is people will judge the likelihood of an event happening based on how readily they can recall a relevant example. So what this means is before you ask someone to buy, first you want to get them to think of a time in the past when if they had your product or service, it would have really come in handy or get them to imagine a time in the future when they could see themselves using it, see themselves benefiting from it. Um, You know, we did some work for um, a a hand scanning company. It was a, you know, manufacturer of hand scanners and a big issue with them was uh, you know, you're, you're doing all of the scanning, and if you have a compromised label on a package, it ends up kind of gumming up the works. And so it was, it was, it's always a real problem. So we sent them a direct mail piece, and we purposefully had a compromised label. It was a, a torn label on it, knowing that when they saw that, they would just have this like kind of hit of recognition. This like, ugh. Oh, you know? yeah, just like uh, uh, picking at the wound. Right, right. It's like, oh, man, I'm so glad that didn't come through my line at work because that would have been a problem. And it just kind of set the uh, the stage for them to, um, you know, for the client to then say, listen, we have an actual product that's better that can read a compromised label, that can read a label if it's put on a SKU, and it can make life easier for you. So just, you know, getting people to, you know, their, their first reaction may be, no, no, all set, have a product, you know, have a solution. If it ain't broke, don't, you know, don't fix it. We're good. But then if you can say to them, uh, you know, you know, if you had something better, wouldn't it have made a difference? Or if you do have something better, couldn't it make a difference? And uh, that kind of sets the stage and uh, gets people to open up to the marketing message. 
Right, and I think it was in this chapter where you mentioned uh, people in the cybersecurity world. And I heard this from someone else recently, like in the last two weeks, where in the cybersecurity world, if you simply talk about data breaches (laughs) in the news, it works really well to bring these things uh, top of mind and want to re-examine what their cybersecurity situation is. Yeah, my uh, a good friend of mine, um, Amy, actually was working for a cyber. I think she is still working for the cybersecurity company, and she was telling me about a line she wrote, and it was "Keep your CEO off the nightly news." Yes, and I thought that was brilliant because yes. you know we've all you know we go home at night, we put on the eleven o'clock news or the seven o'clock news, whatever it is, and and you know the stories are just out there of these you know these companies that are running into trouble because of data breaches, and so it wasn't about like here's why our product is better or here's what our product can do for you. It was literally keep your and it's like yes i'll pay attention to that message <laughs> right. you know, i, I yes. do not want my ceo on the new, nightly news and not on my watch yeah yeah so that was a great way to leverage the availability bias uh to make them realize well no, no wait, wait maybe we are in the market for that well let's jump to uh chapter 16 and again this is one of the things i had never heard of or if i did it it went in one ear and out the other. And that is, good marketing executions break through the clutter. In doing so, they trigger the von Restorff effect, the human tendency to notice and recall things that stand out. Context, surprise, and the pursuit of a reward can each make a message stand out. However, standing out won't always equal success. Marketers must employ the von Restorff effect strategically. So, Nancy, was ist der von Restorf effect? Well, it's a, it's a fancy term, I guess you could say, for the idea that, uh, you know, people will notice and remember things that are different than their surroundings. And this, you know, probably goes back to, uh, you know, to our caveman days. We'd, you know, we'd stick our head out of the cave. We'd scan the horizon. If everything looked the way it did the day before, that was good. Mm-hmm. You know, but if something new had been introduced to the environment or if something had been removed from the environment, if something were different, that could pose a threat. And, you know, back in the day, it could be a very real life or death threat. And, all these years later, it's still hardwired on us to notice things that stand out from, from their environment. So, you know, what that means is we want our marketing messages to stand out. You know, we want a, a subject line that's not the same as everything else in the inbox. We want a direct mail piece that's different than everything else that shows up that day in the mail. You know, we want a TV spot that's different. When you think about uh, here in the U.S., the Super Bowl uh, last year, um, the Coinbase ad, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that was a very different ad than all of the other uh, – spots that were on the Super Bowl, and it did incredibly well for them. It just had like a QR code? It, this was the one, yes. It was the one that had just kind of like that bouncing QR code and, um, you know, didn't really tell you much about what was going on, but uh, people ended up scanning the QR code because it, it just caught their attention. They're like, you know, this is this is unusual. This is different. They scanned it, and um, apparently they, you know, if the um, news reports are to be believed, uh, they did incredibly well. They they got quite a few uh, visitors to their site. I think the site almost crashed at one point. Right. Yeah. But it's about, uh, I think it was the isolation effect, it's also known as. Yes, exactly. You know, you just want, you know, it's why, you know, violators, starbursts, snipes, you know, work in, in marketing, you know, because it calls our attention away from, uh, you know, what's, you know, the surrounding stuff and focuses on something that's a little different. And that's, you know, that's what we need to do as marketers. Well, Nancy, last question. What can you do to prompt people to buy something now when the benefit comes later, if at all? Well, what you can do is you can overcome something called temporal 
discounting. So let's back up a second and say, well, what is temporal discounting? So, mm -hmm. so people are, um, they like immediate gratification, right? Humans like instant gratification, immediate gratification. We prefer um, sooner, albeit smaller rewards over later, although larger ones. You know, there have been a lot of behavioral science studies that show that, you know, people are more, more likely to take $5 today than, you know, $10 tomorrow. And then, of course, tomorrow comes and like, oh, why didn't I hold out for the $10? You know, but we, we want that immediate gratification. And so, so that can be good for marketers to know because we want to stress the, you know, the immediate gratification you'll get if you use our product or service. The time that that becomes a problem is if you happen to be selling something that doesn't, you know, have that like quick payoff, you know? Yeah. I mean, insurance really comes to mind here, all various insurance, forms of yeah. it. Insurance, retirement services, you know, even, even education, going back to school or to, you know, get an advanced degree. And so what you need to do is you need to overcome temporal discounting. The way you do that is you build the bridge between who the person is today and who they're going to be in the future. Because, uh, Behavioral science research shows that, you know, our future selves kind of feel like strangers to us. And so what we need to do is we need to remind people that who you are today with the same preferences, likes, dislikes, you know, hopes, goals, dreams, that's the same person you're going to be next month, next year, 10 years down the road. And you can build that bridge, you know, in a few different ways. One way is to use language to just, you know, get people to say, okay, imagine yourself in the future. Uh, you know, wouldn't you want the, you know, the same control over your finances that you have today? Uh, another way is visually, I think it was uh, Merrill Edge, had this campaign called Face Retirement where you yeah. could upload a photo of yourself and you could age progress it 10, 15, 20, 30, 40 years down the road, see what you would look like that much older. And they had, I think, over a million users and 60% of them uh, said, hey, give me some more information about saving for retirement. So it can be a very effective way of, of overcoming the idea of uh, temporal discounting. But even if you don't have that kind of ability with your website and that sort of thing there are certain words that you can you can still use yes you can you can absolutely uh, use language in order to um you know to kind of get you to uh, to overcome temporal discounting you know whether it's like you know uh then just like today you'll want to you know i think uh, i did something for a client we were trying to get them to save for retirement and we said you know even though you don't necessarily have a ton of money right now you're still calling the shots with how to spend the money that you do have, right? Do you, you know, do you want that to go away in the future? No, when you're retired, you're still going to want to be able to call the shots and that means you're still going to need to have some money. So you better start tucking away some now. So it, it is, it's using language to just draw that bridge, create that bridge between who you are today and, and who you're going to be. I can't remember if it was in this chapter, but is this, uh, the, the, you mentioned in the book, as I recall, the famous direct mail letter from Wall Street Journal about uh, two people that um, were graduating from college the same day and one subscribed to the Wall Street Journal and the other one didn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think I mentioned it in the storytelling. Uh, right, chapter. right. I got that letter when I was in grad school. Yeah. <laughs> I've been subscribing ever since. I, I remembered that story. Uh, well, of course, you remember stories, but I remember getting that pitch uh, when I was a student and it really, uh, it really got me thinking. It sent it you know, transported me to the future. And so would that be an example of what we're talking about here? Yeah, I think it, I think it could be um, because it, it, you know, uh, it made you think about who you were going to be in the future. You know, mm -hmm. it was, it served as a device to kind of bridge that gap. I mean, that's, that's a really interesting example because they wanted you to subscribe to the Wall Street Journal, but they were easily three or four paragraphs in before they even mentioned the Wall Street Journal, let alone subscribing to it. Um, 
but you know they and they never actually explicitly said that the the person who had grown up to be the president became the president because they subscribed to the Wall Street Journal. They simply said they were the, you know, two guys, uh, same school, you know, met at their, you know, reunion. It turned out that one of them was this, you know, was the president or or a very high ranking officer. And the other one uh, still had kind of a mid manager's job. You know, the first one read the journal, the second one didn't. And they just kind of left it like that. And you draw your own conclusion. You're like, oh my gosh, the one who read the journal is the one who progressed. You know, I could see myself doing that. I could see myself progressing in a few years. So maybe I should be, you know, I should be subscribing to the journal. I think it was, um, it was credited with, I think, driving about $2 billion in uh, subscription (laughs) revenue for them. Well, glad to have helped. Uh, There you go. Yeah. But it it worked. You know, like I said, every, every one of these chapters, I'm thinking, yep, let me pull that fish hook out of my mouth. Every one of these I've been, it's worked on me. But at the end of that chapter, you write, marketers can overcome temporal discounting by helping their targets see the similarities between their present selves and their future selves. Without help, your target may have a hard time imagining how their future self will feel and what they would want their present self to do. So, Nancy, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? Well, Douglas, I think it would be that adding behavioral science to marketing best practices will increase the likelihood that people will read and respond to your marketing messages, right? We have to remember uh, that, you know, people often are not making those well-thought-out, well-considered decisions. They're cruising along on autopilot. They're relying on decision defaults, and marketers have the power to trigger those decision defaults. There is no magic bullet. We are, we're not going to be able to force 100% of the people to do what we want them to do. Uh, we're not going to be able to force someone to do something they don't want to do. But by using behavioral science, by adding it to the marketing best practices, we will increase the likelihood that uh, people take the, the behaviors and the actions that we want them to take. Oh, well said. If you're not using behavioral science in marketing, you're probably doing it the hard way. Absolutely. What's one thing a listener could do today? Just to get them, uh, this is like the, 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 the principle of getting people to make small yeses. <laughs> See what I'm doing? Right, what's, right. what's one thing a listener could do today to, to start to put in action one of the ideas from your book while they wait for the book to arrive? Sure. So I think, you know, one of the things that people could do is they could do like a quick audit of their uh, marketing messages, their marketing communications, and look for places to add just just three things. Look for places to add emotion, because that's how people make decisions. Particularly if you're in B2B, you might be really low on the emotion scale there. Look for places to inject some emotion. Mm-hmm. Look for places to add in some social proof. You know, we've, we've talked about that earlier in today's episode, but um, before you ask someone to do something, show them that other people have already done it, right? <laughs> right? And then look for some places to add in some loss aversion. You know, sometimes we bend over backwards to be so positive, so relentlessly positive all the time, but it turns out that, you know, uh, it's people are twice as motivated to avoid the pain of loss. So, you know, I'm not saying we should go all negative, but injecting just a little bit of loss aversion can go a long way. So I think if you kind of do an audit and you look for emotion, social proof, and loss aversion opportunities, you'll start to see some immediate improvements to the KPIs. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no question. And those uh, three areas, particularly the one about emotion, (laughs) it's just not much of it and it's so easy to do. And I have to mention, there was a book about that that was on the show in 2021 called Humanizing B2B by Paul Cash and James Trezona. And their entire book was about just the second thing you mentioned right there about why using emotion is so much more effective. And if you don't use it, you actually might be hurting yourself. I'll include a link 
to that interview on this episode's website page. So looking back, what books have most inspired your work and career, Nancy? Well, Douglas, there have been many, actually, but uh, I think my top three are probably uh, not going to be a big surprise to your listeners, but uh, Robert Cialdini, Influence the Psychology of Persuasion, Dan Ariely, Predictably Irrational, and Roger Dooley, Brainfluence. And those mm-hmm. had, you know, those were three that had a major impact on me. Oh, excellent. Yes. Great recommendations. Uh, not a surprise. And then the other thing is you mentioned uh, so many, you were very generous. You've mentioned all these other authors and their books throughout yours. So people who want additional reading, you've got, it's great at the end of each chapter, you've got all the footnotes and, and, and all the things that you mentioned there. So it, for people like me who just can't stop reading these things, thanks, Nancy. <laughs> I'm kidding. Well, you know what? I, I uh, draw on a lot of people's work. They've been very generous. Uh, I've worked with some really talented people. So uh, I, I wanted to, to try to uh, acknowledge that where I could. Well, you did. So are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or looking forward to reading? Yeah, definitely. Well, you know what? I spent most of last uh, summer and, and fall writing my own book. So mm-hmm. I'm really behind in my reading. But I recently started um, uh, Alchemy by Rory Sutherland. And I'm oh. very excited to dig into that. It, it's, you know, I, the parts that I've read so far, the chapters I've, I've gotten to so far have been really, really interesting. And I want to finish it quickly because uh, there are definitely some books coming up that I'm going to want to read as soon as they come out. I know that Anne Handley is um, coming up with a new edition of Everybody Writes, and Mark Schaefer is working on something called Belonging to the Brand. I know that uh, Melina Palmer and Richard Schotten, uh, they both have new books coming out. So um, I need to kind of clear my, uh, my, my night table so that I can uh, add some more books to it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I know about Mark's and Anne's. And then uh, Schotten's book was mentioned recently in an interview with uh, Sam Tatum, who's with uh, – Ogilvy, his Ogilvy. book, his book was uh, evolutionary uh, ideas. So, well, at marketingbookpodcast.com, we're going to include links to everything linkable, including all the books that you've mentioned, your uh, agency's website, your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter account, and part of the reason we're going to do that is so people can find you and thank you for being a guest on the Marketing Book Podcast. Please, listeners, reach out to Nancy and congratulate her on the book and. Let her know that uh, you listen to the podcast. I, I hope this isn't your last book, Nancy. And because of that, you're going to be deciding which podcast to come back to. So, you know, uh, come on, folks. Let, uh, let her know. She's, she's poured her heart and soul out into this book. I think she's lying when she says it's her first book. But anyway, that's what she said. So, But the guests on the show have really uh, enjoyed hearing from Marketing Book Podcast listeners. Even if you tag them on a LinkedIn post, it, they just uh, they love it. They love it, and you can uh, – keep the conversation going. And if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app like Spotify or Apple Podcasts, all these links can be found by going to this episode right now and clicking on this episode's website link. Final quote, page 265. At the end of the day, marketers need to get people to make decisions. Behavioral scientists have studied how people do that. They've documented the shortcuts they take, the prompts they respond to, and the defaults they rely on. Savvy marketers are now in a position to use what science has proven about human behavior in order to influence it. Now that you understand how people really make choices, you can create marketing messages that are much more apt to get noticed, remembered, and responded to. All it takes is injecting some behavioral science. You're ready to create more effective marketing, the kind that factors in the ways people instinctively behave, 
when you craft messages for how your target will receive them, it delivers an automatic advantage. And now that advantage is yours. Use it to drive the customer behavior you seek. The book is Using Behavioral Science and Marketing, Drive Customer Action and Loyalty by Prompting Instinctive Responses. The author is Nancy Harhut. Nancy, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Douglas, the pleasure was mine. Thank you. And that closes the book on another episode of the Marketing Book Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Special thanks to this episode's sponsor, Marketing Architects, creators of the all-inclusive TV advertising concept that's so revolutionary, they wrote a book about it. For a free copy of the book, All-Inclusive TV, How Booming Brands Are Reimagining TV Advertising, visit this episode's website page at marketingbookpodcast.com or visit marketingarchitects.com slash book and tell them you heard about it on the Marketing Book Podcast. And if you're one of the legions of listeners who have left an iTunes review, please let me return your kind favor by mailing you some Marketing Book Podcast stuff. Just send me your mailing address anywhere in the world, and I'll drop it in the mail. And remember the words of the late, great Jim Rohn, who said, Formal education will make you a living. Self-education will make you a fortune. 